Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Dell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Brain for Biz, and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.com. So to today's show, I am delighted to be speaking today to Professor Guy Biner of Boston College. Guy Biner is the Sullivan Chair in Irish Studies at Boston College, where he specializes in the historical study of remembering and forgetting. Other interests include oral history, folklore, public history and heritage, historiography, terrorism, and the so-called Spanish influenza pandemic. His books on history, memory, and forgetting in Ireland have won multiple international awards. Guy was previously Professor of Modern History at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel, and has held research fellowships at Trinity College Dublin, University of Notre Dame, Central European University, University of Oxford, as well as being a former Burns Scholar at Boston College. Guy's most recent book, Pandemic Reawakenings, The Forgotten and Unforgotten Spanish Flu of 1918 to 1919, was recently published by Oxford University Press. Guy, it is great to be speaking to you. Yep, great to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining. Perhaps a really simple, possibly deceptively simple question to start with. Why do people forget history? Well, the, the question is, in a way, a question, as the French would say, mal posé, is it badly posed, in the sense that, you see, it shows how we approach perhaps the questions of memory and forgetting wrongly. And I'll try and explain, because it's a common misconception. It's not your own. It's, it's a general misconception. We think of memory as the normal condition and forgetting as something abnormal. Right, you know, as if we remember most things and we forget few things, and when it does happen, it's a worrying sign. We have to understand why, but actually, it's exactly the opposite. We forget almost entire, entirely everything we experience and remember very little. Memory is the exception. Remembering is the abnormal condition. And the way we should ask, why do we remember events, or how do we remember events? So, I mean, just this is just a general thought which I like to kind of pose as we approach it. And if we apply that to history, let's think for a moment. I mean, on a personal level, what I told you before is, you know, it's obvious on a personal level. Think what you do in any given day, how many thousands of things you encounter as you go walk down the street and as you go to places and sounds that you hear and smells that you smell. How many of them will you remember at the end of the day when you actually try to recall your day and how many of that specific day will you remember 10 years hence from now? Um, apply that now to history and think for a moment that the vast majority of human experiences throughout time has been completely and irredeemably forgotten. Most of history is forgotten. It's not why do we forget history? History is forgotten because there's too many things to remember, um, just too much. And the only way we can make sense of history is by selectively remembering a handful of events. It thinks we remember a lot. We think we remember a lot. We remember very little. I would say, this would be true for the great majority of history, perhaps up until recently, when now we can see a possible paradigm shift, because now we have information technologies which can capture vast amounts of information. So maybe now we have the ability to capture huge amounts, uh, to document huge amounts of events in the world around us, but even then, we don't really remember them. We capture them, we document them, but we selectively sift through them to remember a few. So first of all, let's think in, in those terms. Um, and I'd say more than that. As a historian, most of those events which were forgotten were fully forgotten, meaning there are absolutely no sources to retrieve them. And therefore, as an historian, I can do very little. If I want to try and trace such forgotten events, how will I even know that they were forgotten? Maybe I'll notice silences, I'll notice gaps, uh, but I have no sources to approach them. I would suggest that when we refer to forgetting, we actually refer to something else. When we talk about events that were forgotten and we can point at the event that was forgotten, we're actually indicating that it was remembered and it was remembered as forgotten. That's the paradox. I want us to think in terms of a paradox here. Um, if we remember an event as forgotten, it's not the same as remembering an event. It's not the same as commemorating an event. It's not the same as memorializing an event. A certain form of memory, 
It took me a long while to understand this as an historian who engaged in forgetting that I was actually engaged in another form of remembering. I was looking at the ways we get, how we recollect events which are uncomfortable for us to remember, which have been covered up, which we've attempted perhaps to forget. Deliberate forgetting is a bit different from just things being uh, obliterated. And, and that's the more complicated story. And this is where I can kind of go into more detail if you want on these issues. Well, before we perhaps do that, if, if the question is less about why do people forget history, should it simply be rephrased as why do people remember history? And what does that give people if they remember history? And in particular, why do they remember certain things, certain points, certain events in history, and possibly not so much others? Well, remembrance is crucial, just as remembrance is crucial on a personal level, it's definitely crucial on a communal and society levels, as we need to have a sense of the past in order to understand who we are. It's about our identity in the present and where we're going to in the future. Otherwise, the world has no meaning. So remembrance is crucial, and it's highly selective because identity is highly selective out of the myriad pluralities of what we could construct our identity out of, we choose certain things which are meaningful, meaningful for us. And we change and shift and select between them in different contexts. Let's remember that what memory does is it's about recalling the past in a present, in a changing present, as the present changes all the time. Therefore, also memory changes all the time. We recall events because we, put, we attach meaning to certain events. Those events are meaningful to us, we attach ourselves to those events and they give us meaning as we move forward in our lives. And we hold on to them because they give us meaning of who we are, where we came from and where we're going to. So memory plays a key role. And at the same time, forgetting plays a key role because we, can't, we know we can't remember everything. Even if we don't know it, we can't remember everything. Forgetting is what gives shape to our memories by discarding different events. And then there's this other, area which remains to be studied, which I think is where memory studies are at the moment or should be at the moment. I mean, this is an agenda I've been kind of trying to introduce over recent years is what about these events that we think we've forgotten? What about these events that we want to forget? What happens to them? What about happens to events that are not comfortable for our current identities, that don't quite fit and, and suit us properly, that we're at an ease with? Do we think we can just press delete and move on? And the answer is, in my opinion, no. Memory doesn't work like that. It's not a light bulb. It's nothing that we switch on and switch off. It's far more complicated. And this is particularly true when you want to talk about communal memories, which we need to think of. We have to be very wary of the term we quickly pull out all the time, which is collective memory. Collective memory is a highly misleading uh, term, not because there aren't memories that we remember communally. I'd argue all of our memories we share communally through speech and interaction, and that even shapes our own personal memories. They're not different. We don't shape our own personal memories individually. They're always through looking at photos with our parents and discovering how we were when we were younger with grandparents and friends. Memories are always social, mostly social, I would say. But what we have to remember is that when we have uh, uncomfortable events that we try and sift through, we don't just, uh, we can't just eliminate them in such a simple way. We, the traces of them remain. By the fact that we try to forget them, we still recall them in different forms. And therefore there are other levels of memory that we need to take into account, meaning forgetting as another form of memory. There are different kinds of narratives which are subdued, which are oppressed, that might reappear. They might be rediscovered. We might want to, we might discover an interest in them at a later stage in our lives or in our history as a society moves forward. Events which are inexpedient at certain events, which are uncomfortable at certain times, a hundred years later might be fascinating, might be crucial. We might have interest, certain groups might want to rediscover them. And therefore this dialectic is all the time there of remembering and forgetting. And we need to put more attention on the aspect of forgetting because we imagine Imagine that forgetting is simply the opposite of remembering. And at the same time, as I tried to warn, this notion of collective memory is highly problematic because there isn't one collective memory of a society. It's not uniform. There are multiple memories, and memory is always a battleground, always contested, always debated. Who remembers what and how and in which ways are constantly debated. 
And another notion we have to be very wary when thinking about collective memory is this notion that it's top down, as if there are certain people that bestow to a society their collective memory, the politicians who give speeches, the people who set up monuments, the historians, people like myself who would like to believe in our hubris that we determine the collective memory of a society, which is completely wrong. We're just one small agent among multiple agents and choreographers and uh, uh, people who shape and dramatize memory in various forms. And that's what we've got to take into account. And in this, there are also agents of memory and agents of silencing. And therefore, this leads us in different ways towards forgetting. Within that then, and, and you use the term communal memory, which I think is really powerful. Because I think about times that I've been involved in different communities, so different, for example, say ethnic or immigrant communities who have developed a particular narrative about their own history and about their own experiences and their own background. And what became evident at different points was that it wasn't so much that history or their history had been edited, but certain things they just didn't get so obviously talked about and other things were brought to the forward. Sometimes say more heroic or more positive things were, were brought to the front, whereas other things that maybe people weren't so proud of were just let slip. Is that a common experience? It's, it's a very common experience. Again, I'd actually even be careful of communal because it again gives us this notion of uniform. Uh, as if things were one story, one narrative, when there's multiple narratives and multiple forms of memory at play. The, the term that I used in my own work, at least in my earlier work, would have been social remembrance. Social because it interacts on various social levels. There's different groups, there's battles and contestations over hegemonic and counter-hegemonic narratives at play. So just like anything in society, it's a contestation and a negotiation on multiple levels. Remembrance rather than memory because the noun is misleading as if this, this is memory, let's pass it on in a game of pass the parcel. And it's never like that. It's an active dynamic process in which we reshape and recraft and play with it all the time. Things are added and removed and changed all the time. Hence social remembrance. What you're hinting at is what I've devoted the last years of my study to is trying to understand a term to which I can afterwards add another term, but I, I would call first of all, social forgetting. What happens with the events that we feel less comfortable with and we're interested in forgetting? And I think there is a dynamic. There are ways that societies silence events. Both, this can be silenced deliberately. There can be silencers. This can be silenced through force. And this can also be self-imposed. This can be self-censorship in different forms. It can be muteness. It can be reticence on different events. We don't speak about them. And what fascinates me about these events is in the cases that I studied, and of course, this requires much more study. I'm hoping that many people continue these kind of studies, but in the cases that I've looked at in a specific case in the North of Ireland, um, but the same with other cases, and also uh, more recently in regards to Spanish flu, uh, what I found is the more you dig, the story becomes more complicated you find that the events were remembered in various forms. And what we find, and this would be the way I would try and explain what social forgetting is, social forgetting turns out to be a tension, turns out to be uh, a dialectic between public silence, public reticence, an avoidance of a topic in various public official spheres, and on the other hand, the retention of various private recollections in various forms and local recollections. And so again, community becomes more complicated because communities, certain communities do remember. And this tension is retained in different forms. Often it's retained in differences between insiders and outsiders in their knowledge. Local small groups, local families might remember various events which weren't supposed to be remembered officially and are not acknowledged officially. And as we follow the story, historically it becomes remarkable because we'll note different moments where these supposedly forgotten memories or hidden memories emerge into the open and become public knowledge. And then again, they might fall again into oblivion. It's this kind of power dynamic at play at different times and suits societies in different ways. The more I looked at it, in a way, social forgetting, which seemed to be an erasure of memories, was actually a way of maintaining these memories over time in hidden guided forms, which actually enabled them to, to sustain themselves. Had they been out in the open, they might have been 
subject to much more eradication, but keeping them in this kind of concealed way allowed certain interested parties to maintain them through time, always in ambivalent form, always through insecurity. It has its own dynamic to itself, which is very different from the politics of outdoors commemoration that we associate with uh, public memory. And what you're saying make, makes a lot of sense. I think, think particularly, and I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but in my my twenties, I spent quite a bit of time with the, the the Latvian community in Australia. So people who had left Latvia during and after the Second World War for various reasons, and you would find this strong memory, communal, collective, social within the bounds of the community but then outside of that community people simply didn't know and perhaps acted as a form of identity that we share this in common we have this awareness and understanding in common but others don't and it was very hard to kind of break into that as someone who was not from that community and to understand all of the different complexities that you referred to from an outsider's perspective Absolutely. So this would be a common dynamic in many cases of kind of subgroups that maintain their memory. And again, I would have explored these kind of narratives in the past through the frameworks of social remembrance, because these are groups of social remembrance that remember it socially within these groups. And they can sustain counter-hegemonic narratives over time. They can sustain these inside memories, which are supposedly hidden to the, to the wider public. The dynamic becomes more complicated because the more you are denied a public arena to express your memories, the more fragile they become. And that's what makes it interesting that, yes, you can sustain these memories as alternative memories over time. Uh, and yet, they don't have the same um, coherence in many ways than public memories. They often become fragmented over time. They often become broken. They become hesitant. And, and that's what makes it more interesting when we follow afterwards what happens to them and why they seem to be forgotten at different times. And that's where social forgetting meets social memory. Social remembrance is what you described as people holding onto their memories and it's their identity. But what happens over time when they become less secure of themselves, when they passes on to a second and third generation, we have to follow these stories. And that's what I do as an historian. And that's why I shed the light more and more on episodes which concern social forgetting where it seems that even the community itself, the sub-community can have an interest to publicly not express these, 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 uh, these cases. It's not always about celebrating the identity. It's very common today to want to celebrate ethnic identity. It seems fine to celebrate ethnic identity in Latvia. But what happens if they have some dark secrets in their community regarding events in World War II, regarding events under communism that people can share privately but not publicly? How is that sustained privately in a society that doesn't want to hear these memories? or doesn't give space for these memories to be expressed. Only at certain moments they can emerge, and other moments they're not there. And these are the stories we need to tease out. And I, I can give examples of how I've approached that as an historian. Please do. I think it'd be, be interesting to, to hear how, how you have approached that in, in more practical terms. All right. So let's take a, an Irish example. And then we could, if you want, we can look at the, the exactly pandemics, a more current topic, and see sure. how that's addressed. But... Um, I wrote a book which was supposed to be a very, very short book originally about how Protestants in Northern Ireland, in particularly Presbyterian communities, uh, it was supposed to be about how they'd forgotten their experiences in a rebellion in 1798. In 1798, the age of revolution, Ireland experienced a major rebellion um, against British rule. Uh, in, in, in very generic terms, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, and it's widely remembered throughout Ireland, specifically in places like Wexford. And I've also written a book on how it was remembered less publicly in the West of Ireland uh, through social remembrance and folklore. And yet Ulster is particularly fascinating because it is one of the major arenas of this rebellion, particularly in counties Antrim and Down in Northeast Ulster. And what was interesting there was that the backbone of the rebels, the, the vast majority were Protestants, in particular Presbyterians who were radical. And yet shortly after this rebellion was suppressed and suppressed with great brutality, um, these communities, these local communities changed and realigned their political allegiances. And as the Act of Union was passed and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was formed, they became, at least publicly, unionists loyalists, orange men, even kind of, you know, uh, extreme loyalists. And therefore you'd see that there's an interest to forget this experience of being involved in a Republican rebellion alongside Catholics against the crown. 
And that was supposed to be a short book of looking at how community forgets, exactly speaking about gaps of silence. And I spent the better part of 10 years, maybe more, maybe 15 years of looking at these communities and exploring their histories. And what was interesting for me in this case was these were highly literate communities. So people had written down folklore and recollections, travel writers had traveled through the area, local antiquarians had collected stories about it, priests and ministers had no taken note, there'd been local histories, forms of literature had expressed uh, things, people had written poetry often in local vernacular uh, language in Ulster Scots that other people weren't aware of, that the government weren't aware of. And the more I compiled this, I began to encounter at first tens of sources, then hundreds of sources, and then hundreds and hundreds, thousands of sources, I had this archive of material of how in different forms, this episode was remembered over 200 years. And I plotted this over 200 years and I had this dilemma. So this is not about forgetting, it's about remembering, but it was about forgetting because at every part of these documented histories, it was always about how this was forgotten. It was always spoken about forms of forgetting. In a way, this was always about rediscovering forgotten forms, which are again, put aside, cast aside again and again and again. And this allowed me to develop an understanding of how we can approach a history of social forgetting, of how at many times it stays within the house and is, is not felt, is imperceptible in, wider, in, in, in a wider sense. And then at other moments it bursts out. A hundred years after the rebellion, suddenly it was being celebrated and then it became too public and embarrassing for people. So the monument that was erected was smashed and it began to be suppressed again. And it disappears in the history of Northern Ireland and appears again at different moments. And, and it's this dynamic which moves back and forth, which allowed me to understand uh, how a history of social forgetting can be charted. And this can be explored on other levels and other arenas. And then I began thinking, can this be explored? There's many countries which have traditions of social forgetting, which haven't been studied. A good case would be exactly Central Europe and Eastern Europe that you alluded to before the Baltics. I think it's rife with traditions of, of social forgetting. I think Ireland is full of traditions of social forgetting. I think every society has its ways of engaging with social forgetting. And I think we can even speak of it on a global scale. And, and it reminds me of the story you're telling the, me there about the uh, 1798 rebellions. Uh, a good friend of mine who is a Presbyterian from Ulster, it wasn't until he was well into his 40s that he happened to visit uh, Wicklow Jail, not far from where I'm based in Dublin. And he read the stories and heard the stories and realized that that uprising was dominated by Presbyterians. And he's, for him, this was a revelation that how could this be? This wasn't the narrative that he had been brought up with. This wasn't the history that he had heard within his community in the north of Ireland in the 70s and 80s. So, so this tension is, is a classic tension. And yet the resources were within his own community, within his own locality, within his own region to rediscover that memory all the time. It was actually lying right under his nose for most of the time. But the public forms of remembrance displayed by loyalist Presbyterian communities was that of celebrating the victories of Protestants over Catholics in the 18th century, right? Or the, the, the 17th century, you know, the, the late 17th century. That, that would be the orange tradition, right? The Battle yeah. of the Boyne was celebrated. And other events were relegated to kind of uh, social forgetting. And, and that's what we have to see because the traces were all over. Yeah, and, and, and that's what we need to think about. Well, if we we bring it a bit more uh, up to date and, and perhaps turn to, to some of your more recent research as well, why did that sort of process of perhaps social forgetting um, happen with the 1918-1919 pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu? What is it about that that led people to maybe cast aside those memories? Well... Here again, we need to think about, because the more I looked at Spanish flu, I realized that it's more of a case of social forgetting than collective amnesia. Again, it's the same dynamic, so I need to explain that. And if we have time afterwards, I'll move it also into the cultural sphere, which we've kind of missed, and I think that adds another dimension. But let, let's start with looking at what happens there. Quite a few people have commented on the fact that this was a forgotten pandemic. And we have to be very careful when we use this term. It can be qualified, but the more we qualify, we realize how problematic it was. And the other point is people have also commented why it was forgotten. And I'd also consider that problematic, meaning again, what I'm suggesting is that your question again is mal posé, but not because of your fault, because that's the common question. That's the one we run for. And I'll explain how we can redefine that question in a more productive way. So 
Yes, we had this pandemic a century ago, which may have been the most devastating event of similar time frame throughout the whole of human history, recorded history. All right. Um, it killed, it is responsible for more deaths than any of the other uh, major catastrophes that we think of in the 20th century, more than World War I, more than World War II, each one of them, right? More than uh, the purges of communism, more than the Holocaust. We have all the devastating 20th century, and yet this event in the early part of the 20th century is was so deadly, was so devastating, uh, was so earth shattering. And yet we look at it in the forms of how we think of remembering an event and we ask, how can this be? Where are the monuments? Where are the museums? Where are the remembrance days? Why isn't it marked in literature? How did it kind of fall off the human record? And the more we look at it and historians played part of the role, historiographical neglect, read histories of the 20th century. And only now after COVID, story histories are being rewritten because we have a new awareness. But I've been playing this game for years. I've been opening national and continental of different continents and global histories and searching through their index. Where is Spanish flu? Where's influenza in it? Many cases not mentioned at all. In some cases mentioned in a sentence, in some cases a paragraph. Other books will give it two pages at most. And we have to think, how could this happen for such a devastating event? And there are many explanations for why, that it's easier for us to remember war than to remember something like pandemics. We don't have the kind of heroic narratives for it, uh, even maybe the nature of the specific pandemic, because it's not quite true. Certain events were remembered throughout history, like the Black Death, which was remembered for centuries. So we could argue that maybe influenza didn't have the same marks, wasn't as shocking, it seemed externally as, as, as kind of other plagues, which seem much more shocking in their symptoms and how they appeared. We can say that we, we can add, a whole series of other factors that people have brought in and introduced to why Spanish flu may have been forgotten. The problem is that each reason will give, and people have written about this. In fact, histories that came out in recent years as this topic was increasingly rediscovered in the last decade, and that's a phenomenon itself, which we need to think about rediscovery of forgotten memories, of supposedly forgotten memories and why they're rediscovered. Um, as this was happening, it became almost an obligatory chapter for people to write about how this the Spanish flu had been forgotten and to propose why. And the problem with why questions is we'll never really know. For every explanation you give of why it was forgotten, I can give you an example of another event, another disease, another similar event, which was remembered. Meaning you could say epidemics are not remembered. And one reason might be that it can be politicized, which might be true. But then the AIDS pandemic shows that how a group can be associated with a pandemic and can politicize it and make sure that we remember it. We can find examples for different cases of why. I think the question should be different. We should ask, how was it forgotten? And by asking how it was forgotten, we find a much more complicated story. And this leads us into a story which mixes what I would call social forgetting with something we haven't talked about, which is cultural forgetting, which I need to explain. I'll start with social forgetting. Publicly, it was overshadowed by the Great War, the great public remembrance of World War I, uh, which was remembered definitely in European cultures, perhaps less so in other places, but it had this huge memorial culture of uh, the graveyards, uh, the, you know, the, the battlefields themselves, uh, war heritage, the monuments, it, it permeated literature and public debate for years, the memory of the Great War. And the Great Flu was overshadowed in these stories, so much so that it's remarkable. Just, you know, um, the example I like to give is, is how um, Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, commissioned a volume in 1924 uh, called These Eventful Years, the 20th century in the making, as told by many of its makers. Two volumes in which they took the great writers of the early 20th century to write about the 20th century. The 20th century is just beginning, but already they're writing the first history of it. And it's a massive two volume book, 1,350 pages, um, and not one reference to flu, even though all of them had gone through flu. Spanish flu, all of them experienced in some way or other. And we have to ask how it doesn't not seem to be historical. They don't know how to deal with it historically. And yet, on the other hand, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of families that experienced death and bereavement, did they forget simply the people that they lost? Did they forget simply that experience? Again, it's one of these cases where as a society, it was overshadowed by other events and this culture of moving on and recovering and just soldiering on and a whole narrative we have after recovering from a war. Uh, it was, and in many ways also, we should acknowledge the shame of doctors who 
were left helpless against this, uh, this disease because they didn't even know it was a virus. It wasn't discovered yet what the, the influenza virus is at the time. And modern medicine had nothing to offer against it. There's many reasons why people are reticent to talk about it in different forms or to write about it or publish about it. And yet local families had their recollections but they weren't acknowledged in the private sphere. Again, we have this example, we have this attention. And how do I know that local uh, story, local recollections were remembered? You can say, guy, you're supposing this. Well, there's different indications, but the most interesting case is, had we bothered to ask what we would have found? And there was a historian that did bother to ask. A, a, a popular English historian by the name of Richard Collier was writing in the 1970s. And he discovered that if he wants his books to be interesting as a popular historian who doesn't work for a university, he should, in a way, he was using oral history before it became an academic field. It was oral history avant la lettre. He used to write histories of World War II, for example. He himself had been an RAF pilot and he brought in testimonies from people from the time. And his books were very popular, were kind of very colorful. So he did this experiment and he wrote a book about Spanish flu. In the 1970s, he put out in the early 1970s ads around the world in different languages saying, do you have any stories to tell me about Spanish flu? And he was sent thousands of responses. This is just one person doing it himself. He gets these hundreds of responses around the world with a limited budget, self-financed. And that's just one indication. And historians dismiss this. These were kind of anecdotes. It wasn't brought into histories. It wasn't acknowledged. This is seen as an interesting, curious book, but not something we could do anything with, which shows a lot about ourselves and how we treat these kind of events. Um, not all historians. Two remarkable historians are still with us today. Richard Collier is no longer with us. He passed a few years ago. Um, but uh, two remarkable historians are still with us. Uh, Howard Phillips in Australia, in, 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 in South Africa, um, and, and Jeffrey Rice in New Zealand. Both were young historians at the time. Phillips was a PhD candidate. He read this book, thought it's really, really interesting, corresponded with Collier, and then goes and does oral history in South Africa, interviewing different communities, whites, blacks, Afrikaners, traveling around using translators and collected testimonies from the period. Jeffrey Rice, who is a young historian at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, does a similar thing, goes to old people's homes and interviews people. They collect this material, and yet their collections, which they used in their work, uh, weren't published up until very, very recently, just until a couple of years ago. And it's as if there wasn't an interest of people to have mm. these collections out. So this has to ask us, why don't we want to hear about these personal stories? When did we make histories which could accommodate them? So we had this social forgetting going on all the time, this tension of families that recalled it as a devastating event that changed their life, and yet public memory, which didn't acknowledge it. If I can, I'll add another dynamic here. Okay. And that's what about culture? I mentioned to you the term social remembering, but there's another term that's been developed highly in recent years and has become maybe the key word more than collective memory, and that's cultural memory. How culture recalls the past through literature, through painting, through museums, through statues. That's a huge field, uh, extremely developed. Um, and I think what's missing there is, a, is a, a similar term is cultural forgetting. Again, cultural forgetting is not pressing delete and deleting any recollection of something. We like to think, again, the flu is, very, is a good example for this. We'd say, where were all the great books about the flu? So much was written about World War I. Where were the great paintings? Where were the great movies about it? And then we begin digging and we find that there is, or there was some literature on the flu. There were paintings even by great artists on the flu. There were various works but nobody seemed to notice them. Nobody seemed to pay attention. This was neglected. It wasn't seen as a noteworthy cultural topic. So cultural forgetting is essentially about what gets into the canon, what is it doesn't, what things are pushed out. And things that are pushed out and marginalized in the canon at certain times attract our attention and we're fascinated in them. And rediscovery is part of this dynamic which countermands what I'm talking about of social forgetting and cultural forgetting. And if you want an example of rediscovery, Nothing like the great flu could be better than that. For years I was working on it and following and noticing each time how slowly an interest was growing. And then there was the centenary of the great flu in 2018, 2019. And there were some events around the world. It was kind of noted, there was documentaries. It seemed like it had been rediscovered. And yet the great vast majority of the public well, had a vague notion of it. And then COVID comes around. And in one month, March, 
2020, as the world goes around synchronically almostly, almost into its first lockdown, you can see Google searches around the world flicker and burst with searches for Spanish flu. Suddenly this is there and people are clicking around and uncovering information. And by the way, the reason they could find information so easily on the web was not because the web retains everything. It's because the 10 years before that had been a decade of rediscovery and that creates another dynamic, which if we have time, we can go to, if not, that's another podcast of how for 10 years before that, we had been in a stage, just a bit more, maybe 15 years before that, we'd been in a stage of pandemic preparedness. We've been told a big pandemic is coming. And people began looking at earlier pandemics to find how to deal with this pandemic. So the memory was already being rediscovered. Social forgetting and cultural forgetting were being countermanded in the last 15 years, and suddenly it exploded into public awareness in 2020 and in the last couple of years. And now you can mention Spanish flu in a podcast and we don't have to spend half an hour for me to explain to you what was Spanish flu because the resources are out there. It, it, it reminds me of a, a blog post I, I read probably about 18 months ago now by uh, an Australian economist, Joshua Gads, who is based at the University of Toronto. And he made the point that Australia's policy on COVID was severely lacking. And Australia pursued, as some people will know, a, a very strict lockdown approach. You couldn't enter the country, you couldn't leave the country. And, and what he argued was that because Australia collectively, and particularly, obviously, the Australian governments, had forgotten about the Spanish flu and forgotten the lessons of the Spanish flu, they were repeating the same mistakes in terms of how to handle it. And so I guess what that comes to then is, what, what are the consequences of forgetting? And, and equally, what then are the consequences of remembering, if I can use those two admittedly probably loaded terms? Well, there's an easy way of presenting that, and I'm going to complicate it because nothing is easy. It's These things are too easy to, 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 to make, and even the thesis was presented there, which has been presented by a few people we have to be careful about. On the one hand, it seems to make sense, right? And we can compare it with a country close by, New Zealand, which seemed to be handling events much better than Australia, and New Zealand seemed to have come to terms just before that with the legacy of Spanish flu, thanks to people like Jeff Rice and other community historians, which had been rediscovering for quite a while before that, the, the lost memories of uh, Spanish flu. And New Zealand had even, it was the only country to date, by the way, that has a national memorial for Spanish flu. And this was inaugurated during the centenary. Just after, it didn't even manage to do it during the centenary. It was afterwards, just before COVID, it was unveiled by Jacinda. Ardern. So I'm saying New Zealand seemed to have kind of taken on board things. And we can say quite easily, well, New Zealand learned its lessons and did much better. Let's be careful about that. It, it might seem to make sense and there might be some truth in it. What we have to remember is the world was responding to COVID again so chronically all around the world. Everybody was going to lockdown. Everybody was making mistakes. The lessons from 1918 weren't all that obvious. If there were lessons, we have to think about them in a much more complicated way. It's not quite as simple as that. It's part of the story, but it's, it's more complicated. Uh, of course, there's consequences. Um, a lot can be learned from history, even though history never repeats itself in a one-to-one. -one. There's always present circumstances, there's always changing conditions. Of course, as an historian, I believe we should be looking at history and thinking all the time and comparing and thinking. Even as we look at Ukraine now, we should be thinking about historical lessons all the time, all the time. What we are dealing with is, however, something more complicated. What I'm trying to say about social forgetting is often the way a society, a community, a culture deals with events which are difficult to deal with is through social forgetting. Often that's the way it opts to deal with various events. And it changes in different forms, by the way. We're also, a debate has been so Western so far. Everything I've talked about so far, I've given you Western examples. What I tried to do uh, in this pandemic volume that I edited was to look at it globally and to think about other societies and other communities. What about uh, to use uh, ethnomusicology, for example, to listen to songs in various countries, in various faraway places, um, to listen to folklore, uh, to look at other traditions in which the flu was remembered, but also there I encountered various forms of social forgetting, how it was overshadowed by other catastrophes, how other narratives came into play, how battles against colonialism could overshadow it. So we have to follow this dynamic and sp specify it in various contexts. So it's a global story, which is fascinating, which is much more complicated than we think. And I think that's part of the story. Part of the story is events which are inexpedient and uncomfortable for us, which we have a, an ease with, 
and how we find moments which we want to engage with them, which they're certainly very, very useful for us. The case of the pandemic is interesting because for years people were saying, what about the memory of the pandemic? And it didn't seem to have that cachet. And now it seems to be obvious. And I'd say even more than that, I can even show you how it's immediately relevant. You asked, how could we learn lessons of, an, of, of encountering COVID? Well, there could have been lessons, but actually what's more interesting about our story is the question you haven't asked yet, which I think maybe is the question of our time, is people are now increasingly worried about how we remember our experience with COVID. Will it be also subject to oblivion? Will the many people who died, how will they be commemorated? Now, this in itself is a fascinating case for me to look at because it embodies a lot of what I'm, I'm thinking about. On the one hand, there's absolutely no fear that COVID will be forgotten. Think about how many oral history programs were initiated the moment COVID struck in. Every university, every local library, every local community was feverishly collecting and documenting um, experiences of COVID. Now, I think people are very proud of that. And I think it's very interesting for me as an historian. People say, we mustn't forget and we have to document and remember what happened. Actually, I'm not sure it was even needed. It wasn't needed because we, we, live, we live in an age of auto-documentation. COVID was much better documented on social media. All we have to do for a record of COVID is look at what was put on YouTube, what was tweeted during this time, what appeared on Instagram, what appeared on TikTok. It's the most documented uh, pandemic experience of all time. And it's there. And so why did we rush to try and document things? Why are we so afraid that it'll be forgotten? This tells us something about ourselves. And this is perhaps the more, more interesting point that we seem to forget. We think that history happens, then it's remembered, and then it's forgotten. That again seems to be the logic that we have, right? Just as you thought that we remember most of history, and there's a few things we forget. The more I look into these dynamics, they become much more muddled and complicated. As an event happens, it's already being remembered. In fact, sometimes it's being remembered before it happens. How can that happen? It's being remembered before it happens because as it happens, we begin remembering it, understanding it, and then shaping our memories of it on the basis of previous events that give it some meaning. The rediscovery of Spanish flu gave us terms to understand what it is to be living through a pandemic that shapes our experience. It's a pre-memory which is there. And not only that, we even begin forgetting an event before it's been remembered and it's happened because we have anxieties it'll be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And these anxieties fit into the way we'll remember it. The fact that we're anxious about how we're going to remember COVID perhaps ensures that it'll be remembered, but also be remembered in a nervous form, which leans itself towards social forgetting, the kind of forgetting that I've told you about. And this happened historically before because um, a few decades, before Spanish flu hit in, there was another global pandemic of flu. It was called the Russian flu. And the generation that had lived through Spanish flu had encountered the Russian flu. And already then, experiences of the Russian flu were feeding into how they would remember and forget Spanish flu. I mean, this dynamic repeats itself. So the story becomes much more complicated the more we dig into it. So you started by asking a simple question. You've opened a whole can of worms. It's a Pandora's box. <laughs> well, in, indeed it is. And, and it reminds me of uh, something someone said to me last week, which was quite simply, can we erase the last two years and start again? It was this conscious desire to just forget about all of the stuff that's happened, to be polite about it over the last two years. However, we then run into other problems and, and other challenges. But that's the point. That in a nutshell, if we have to kind of encapsulate everything we've been talking about over the past half hour or so, is exactly this desire to erase it because it's unpleasant, which means it will be not erased, it'll be remembered in muted forms and in comfortable forms. We we're going to try and move on and it'll keep reappearing in different forms. Initially, that's exactly the way social forgetting and cultural forgetting is initiated and perpetuates itself. And, and when you talk about the, the, the cultural forgetting and cultural remembering, the, the, there's a line, I think it was that Eric, uh, Eric Hobsbawm who talks about invented tradition. And it strikes me that sometimes the commemorations that people engage in, whether they might be sort of annual remembrances or otherwise, are a form of invented tradition to, to try and nail down some kind of official or semi-official narrative around all of these events. Uh, you're entering into very testy waters here because I've <laughs> thought a lot about invented tradition. Yes, traditions are invented all the time, and yet it's more complicated than was proposed originally many years ago. When Hobson presented it, it was the late 70s, and he then already knew this was the beginning of a debate, but too many people have returned to that as if it was dogma, as if it was kind of 
the, the law given from Sinai. Hobsbawm never wanted it to be like that. And that's why it's unfair each time we keep citing him on, he keeps citing him on invented traditions because um, the point is there's limits to how much it can be maneuvered and manipulated. The Hobsbawm model was a neo-Marxist model in which authorities invent tradition from above and impose on the public, but there's always local traditions and it has to find its place within it. There's limits to the reception. One of the points that he himself made was it has to be transmitted on a broad length. He used this kind of radio uh, broad wave that people can accept. And so as an historian, the way I approach these things is I look over time at how traditions are constantly reinvented and regenerated. It's very rarely ex nihilo out of nothing. There's something before that it's changed and it has to change. Because of tradition, we think tradition is something which remains constant over time. That's another big illusion, like with memory. If tradition remained exactly as it was, it would quickly become a fossil and become irrelevant. The fact that we have traditions in our life and we practice them is because they subtly all the time are being reinvented and rechanged. And at certain moments, there's a concerted effort to introduce something new, taking old pieces and making some new configuration. And that's what happens at the site of our commemorations all the time. If we perhaps bring things up to today and, and maybe start to, to perhaps bring things to a, to a kind of close. What do you think are the implications for us as, as a world and as societies, as we hopefully emerge from COVID-19, but also as we grapple with other challenges, including the wars in, in Yemen, Ukraine and, and elsewhere, how should we or should we, in any particular way, go about remembering or, or, or even forgetting those elements? Ah, good. Well, you know, you've already figured out how, how the dynamic is going to go here, so I'm going to tell you the question is badly posed. And that's all right, because these are common questions. I'm, I'm sorry, questions. Guy. I'm sorry. No, you're not. So, you shouldn't be sorry, because you're posing the questions that everybody's asking. And that's fine. We have to rethink these questions, I believe. And the big problem that I have, and it's the question that everybody, you're exactly asking the right question, in that sense, it's the wrong question, is the use of the imperative. How should we remember? The should is what bothers me. The should again hits to the whole notion of collective memories. If there's a collective memory and it should be advised by certain people who are the specialists in memory and they'll tell us how to do it. And we think we're very sophisticated. We even know how to do it ethically. That's a big word at the moment, ethical remembrance. And that's right, we'll do it. We'll be more inclusive. I'll be more politically correct. And we've got it right. And now we've got it exactly right. And as an historian, I know that rights change all the time. The things float and change as contexts change all the time. That there's always dynamics of force of what's right for one person is wrong for another person. And we have to be very, very careful. Um, and in this sense, the first thing I'd like to say is to be careful about that. As an historian, it's much easier for me because I look at the past and not at the future, so I can see how the mistakes that are made and see how it is, and, and follow the dynamics over time, rather than uh, coming up with a quick solution of telling people, this is what you should do. Um, I can comment on the way we remembered and how we remember at the moment and how we can move into the future. And I can also offer a warning at the end. In terms of commenting, I'll say, the point we should first of all acknowledge is that we're obsessed with memory. The 20th century, especially in its latter half, has been obsessed with memory. The last 30 years have been obsessed with memory. It's an age where we remember everything around us in every place, through museums, through films, open any TV program, open Netflix, how many programs engage with the past in different ways, whether comed comedic or parodic, but they're there in every form. Vikings alone at the moment in Netflix, I think there's five series running on Vikings, from the funny to the serious, okay? Uh, so we're constantly engaged with trying to remember the past in various forms and with history in various forms. It's not that we're forgetting the past, but we have an anxiety. This indicates an anxiety that we are forgetting the past. Because in past events, we didn't have to make that conscious effort. There's a sense that the past we're losing contact in it, that we're losing contact with traditional ways of remembering, of remembering the past. So we have to keep reinventing new forms. We feel a need for it. So that's one point we should stop and take stock of, that there's this need. Commemoration is bursting everywhere. Another point we might want to think of is how paradigms shifted over the second half of the 20th century. Um, in the 19th century, for example, could say for most of history, but it's very evident in the 19th century, it was a celebration of victors. It was great to be a colonial power defeating another nation. You celebrated that. Now we're ashamed of that. Uh, since the second half of the 20th century, slowly as we internalized 
um, the legacies and the heritage of the Holocaust, I think, was a key point here. Afterwards, also colonization. And as decolonization kicked in, we are more aware of commemorating victims. This also creates a whole range of what you called before invented traditions, as the whole race becomes to re rephrase yourself as a victim. Everybody's a victim. Putin is phrasing himself as a victim as he bombs another country. You know, it's remarkable when you think about it. Everybody, nobody wants to be the villain in the story. Everybody wants to be the victim. And that in itself uh, shows something and shows how much cultural capital there is in memory of trauma. So memory of trauma has become a huge term where in the past memory was much more triumphalist. We should be aware of that because memory of trauma can often become triumphalist. I have little further to look than my own country in Israel, the way the Holocaust is remembered and commemorated. The most, worthy, uh, the most worthy mission of commemorating the Holocaust and never letting its memory die is often used for triumphalist purposes in utilitarian ways. And that's something we have to think about. It happens in other ways, how we use victimhood to justify other events. So that, that would be just one term to think about. I would add as a warning, as a last warning, because since we're talking about memory and forgetting, is we think that the answer is to remember everything, to drag everything out into the open and commemorate it publicly. We should be very careful about that. Always there have been points where people wanted to evade points, which they're uncomfortable. It might be interesting for us to find and rediscover these moments. It might have a lot of value of doing it, but we should also be respectful in how we do it and realize that communities, the way they dealt with events was often by remembering it through social forgetting. It was remembered and forgotten at the same time. It was commemorated and hidden at the same time, or not commemorated, remembered it in homes at the same time. And, and we, we have to think uh, about these traditions and how we engage with them. That's why the study of social forgetting and cultural forgetting for me is so crucial, because otherwise it becomes a forceful dynamic exactly of the experts of memory. And there are many experts now in memory, and they all speak in the terms of should. That's what marks our whole obsession with the field of a remarkable, a very important field of, of, of social justice. We talk about social justice and people know what they should be doing, but in this should, they can also cause damage and trigger terrible reactions at the same time. We have to be very careful. And so what I would caution at the moment is let's be a little bit more humble. Let's approach it more carefully. And as we deal with remembering, let's remember remembering is only a small part of the picture. There's a lot of forgetting out there. And within this huge world of remembering and forgetting, there's traditions of social forgetting, which we need to approach carefully. And at certain moments, they're waiting to be rediscovered, as in the case of the pandemic. And in other moments, there's people who have an interest to bring them back into the shadows because they're still uncomfortable. We have to think how to engage with them carefully. Professor Guy Bainer of Boston College, thank you very much for your time. song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.